And folks, one more quick thing before we get going. It's the end of the year, and we know you're getting asked for money by all sorts of worthy causes. That's right. And we hope that you'll consider giving to the DPD so we can continue to provide you a weekly hour of smart conversations and recommendations about one of the world's most precious resources, the arts. We do have wonderful sponsors. You just heard one. But their support only covers a small part of the cost of production. So if you like the show, consider a gift. To make donating as easy as possible and more fun, we've got a new way to do it. Just text the word ICEBREAKER to 677-677. You'll get a joke sent to you on the spot and a link to our donation page. I guess that's a gift. Once again, that's the word ICEBREAKER to 677-677. It's instant groans and instant giving. Thank you for considering it. And now, speaking of, here's your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. What's the difference between an old Greyhound bus stop and a lobster with a boob job? I don't know. Well, one's a crusty bus station and the other's a busty crustacean. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to the Dinner Party Download, your weekly audio atlas of everything excellent in culture. Happy December already. Yes, here we are. Weird. Thanks for joining us. Other guests this hour include show host par excellence Anthony Bourdain and one of the best emerging actors around Mackenzie Davis, star of Halt and Catch Fire, Black Mirror, and the new movie Always Shine. Plus, Nashville's own Kurt Wagner of the band Lamb Chop plays party DJ, and we learn all about Japanese acting legend Toshiro Mifune. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. <laughs> All week long, you've been hearing headlines like this. Wildfires in mountainous East Tennessee. The carrier company announced last night it's reached a deal with Trump to keep about 1,000 jobs in Indianapolis. In Cuba today, thousands of people lined up to pay their respects to the late Fidel Castro. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by senior staff editor of the New York Times, Aaron McCann. That makes it sound like you're the only one. I know. There are others. Let's just keep it at that. All right. Aaron, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm here to talk about conveyor belting. Okay. Interesting. Is this like planking? No, but, <laughs> no, it's but not. A new planking. It's a it's a practice formerly enjoyed by students at the University of Freiburg in Germany, where they could snatch anything that they wanted off of a conveyor belt or a return tray in the cafeteria. That sounds like totally. That sounds like fun. Actually, it's, a, it's you know, I, are these are leftovers. I'm I'm assuming exactly. You know, you're just you're taking your tray up. You see someone didn't eat all of their chicken nuggets or their strudel or whatever they eat at the University uh-huh. of Freiburg, and <laughs> and you could just take it. And now, for fears of safety and allergies, and the story doesn't actually say poisoning, but I don't know. Maybe somebody <laughs> was afraid of that. Officials have now banned students from taking half-finished meals. No more mm. conveyor belting in Freeburg. I think one saying. of the problems is putting moving food. I mean, I think we're <laughs> wired, we're hardwired to kind of want to To pounce. just want to, like, save that food? <laughs> if we were in the forest and we saw a key lime pie running by, we'd want to jump on that, wouldn't we? Well, sure. see, this, they're putting, the, the story says they're putting a cover over the conveyor belt to prevent people from picking at the leftovers <laughs> as they slowly, slowly go by. Well, that does sound a little extreme, but, you know, this is a university. You never know what germs the kids are infested with yeah. these days. Me- meanwhile, making out and passing around joints, totally acceptable <laughs> yep. ways to Absolutely. pass alive at the University of Freeburg. Keep it up, kids. Erin <laughs> uh, McCann, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for a conveyor belt of cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then ask a bartender to capture its essence in cocktail form. It's like history's a rose garden watered with booze. Oh, those poor roses. Those worst things. First, the history part. This week back in 1952, London became shrouded in fog. And it wasn't nearly as romantic as it sounds. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. 
The British invented crumpets, the Beatles, and smog. The word was coined in 1905 to describe the clouds of coal smoke and fog shrouding UK cities. And on December 5th, 1952, the Brits also gave us one of the worst examples of smog pollution ever. A cold fog blew into London that day, hit a high-pressure system, and got trapped over the city. The smoggy air sat there for days, and millions of Londoners made it worse because the weather was so cold they all fired up their coal-burning heaters. The stew of soot, sulfur dioxide, and fog got so thick in some places people couldn't see their own feet. They called it the Big Smoke. Planes were grounded. Trains stopped running, and so did ambulances, which was kind of an issue for folks who already had breathing ailments. At least 4,000 of them eventually died. Analysts today put that number at more like 12,000. Ivor Leverton, a London undertaker at the time, later told the BBC he had his hands full. In nearly every case, there's an old person in bed who died gasping for breath because there's nothing like the smog before or since. Afterwards, England passed a bunch of clean air laws, but they took a while to work. Another big smoke in 1962 claimed around 700 lives. So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve along with it, and after that, I could use a drink. I am speaking with Murray Drysdale, his bar manager at Hawksmoor Spitalfields Bar in London. And first of all, Murray, how is the weather there today?、Uh, the uh, weather is、uh, freezing cold, very icy morning,、right. um, but、yeah. no fog. No fog today, no. Thank God. All right, you heard the story. What drink did that inspire? So the first drink that really sprung to mind was actually a drink that was created over your side of the pond. That's the、uh, Samoan fog cutter.、Um, oh, so this is、like、a tiki a, drink. It's an, absolutely. It's a tiki drink that was、uh, created in the、um, Great Depression to、uh, lift people's spirits. So after that sad story, let's have a little bit of、uh, fun times. All right. So what does this start with? So what I've done is I've taken spirits that are would have been popular. Around that time in London, so we're using、uh, Heyman's Old Tom Gin made here in London. Oh, very nice.、Uh, Hein VSOP cognac.、Um, cognac and gin. That's yeah, a, absolutely. That's what I really like about the original fog cutter is the complexity of the blending of the base spirits. All right.、Uh, we're also using a good glug of Lafroig Ten Year Old, which is one of my personal favorites. A Scotch, a very smoky Scotch. Yeah, absolutely. Ties in with the smog. Aha.、Uh-huh. Uh, so we have those three as the base spirits, and、uh, we're using a. Cruz del Mar cream sherry. Oh my God, there's、uh, a lot going on in this. Yeah, and then the original contains both orange and lemon. So for the orange component, we're using、uh, orange marmalade syrup, very sort of quintessentially British ingredient, if you like. Oh yeah, of course. But you're using a syrup, not the actual marmalade. Yeah. So basically, we've、uh, taken the marmalade and we just reduced that down with some water just to blend in with the other ingredients.、Easier. All right. Although you, if you used actual marmalade, there would be like pieces of orange peel and junk floating around in it, which seems appropriately polluted. So maybe we <laughs> yeah,、could. absolutely, but、uh, less 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 fun on the palate. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, actually, we were actually adding a splash of、uh, egg white in there for texture as well. So you've got the sort of cloudiness on the top. Ah,、uh, yes, and then it looks like a fog. Absolutely. And this sounds a lot nicer to inhale. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> 
Murray Drysdale of Hawksmoor Spitalfields Bar in London. And by the way, the new Netflix series, The Crown, which is about the life of Queen Elizabeth, Mm -hmm. features an entire episode set during the big smoke of 52. So you can check that out if you want a dramatization of what that was like. Or if you're in Beijing, you can just step outside. Uh, Alas. And folks, there are actually even more ingredients in Mary's drink than he mentioned during that interview. It's crazy. The whole encyclopedia-sized recipe is at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've made small talk, had drinks, now this party needs music. And here with that is Kurt Wagner, frontman for the Nashville music collective Lamb Chop. Over 12 albums, he's drawn on everything from country to hip-hop to create odd, lyrically rich music. With his new album, Flotus, he's added beat-driven electronica into the mix. Mm. The LA Times describes it as, quote, something really magical. And here's Kurt with a fittingly enchanting playlist. Hi, I'm Kurt. I'm in a group called Lamb Chop. This is the dinner party soundtrack. It never hurts to kick off things with a little lefty for sale. It's a song called Bring Your Sweet Self Back to Me. There's something about the man's voice that draws you in, and he starts out in a sort of acapella, unadorned sort of way. You think it's going to maybe become a mournful, beautiful, sad ballad. Oh, my darling, please listen and And it just kicks over into something straight out of hee-haw. And take those feet of yours and come to me So you can take those arms of yours and squeeze me I'd be so happy, things would be right Or you could take those lips of yours and kiss me all the night so I grew up in Nashville in the 60s. My folks were from Brooklyn, and they just moved down to Nashville, and it was like they'd moved to the moon. And I was a young man with hair down in my butt. But I was fascinated by country music. They had like a superstore for steel guitars, and you could see all these musicians just hanging around because they had nothing better to do, and they were all just wailing away. So it was kind of like hanging out in outer space, all these crazy sounds. And I was just completely taken with it. Oh, yes, you'll hurry and bring your sweet step back to me. So uh, I think the next song we're going to play, we're going to get right to it. And this is a guy named Dick Todd. While you're slurping up your soup and maybe passing the dinner rolls, we can listen to this song. It's called Daddy, You've Been a Mother to Me. Daddy, dear old daddy, you've been more than a daddy to me. One of the things that draws me to this type of music that there's a sound that sort of takes you to this place. When dinner parties, I think, were an important way people got together and, and shared their lives together, that kind of orchestration sort of sets that mood for me. Maybe I'm just an old dude. You might have gone with the boys every night. You gave them up just to bring me He's so damn sincere, you know. But somehow I think maybe uh, it can be read in a different context, a more modern version of what we think of when something's a mother. Daddy, you've been a mother to me. 
the next song that we're going to check out is, is a song by the Ink Spots, and it's called Do I Worry. Do I worry cause you're stepping out? For me, they actually could be one of the true innovators of hip-hop. I mean, this is a doo-wop group that introduced spoken word into their songs. Am I curious when the gossip flies? Am I furious about your little white lies? I think hip-hop came out of doo-wop. It came from people just making music a cappella on the streets. Do I worry? Honey, you know doggone well I do. I started out as a, as a sculptor, and I was getting my master's in Montana. Winters would last at least 10 months, so there's a lot of shut-in time. And I created a room, and I drew on every surface of the room, the bed, the window, the walls. I was sort of thinking, well, if you were kind of trapped by a snowstorm and all you had was like, you know, a ballpoint pen or a pencil, what would happen? <laughs> Start drawing on all your stuff. Do I lose any sleep and then when I finally unveiled it as part of a, a show, I uh, had on the loop an Ink Spot song. Do I worry? You can bet your life I do. I would absolutely never play our lamb chop song at one of our own dinner parties, but I'm making this exception <laughs> for y'all. The way that I've sort of been going about writing the, the songs for this new record and our track How in particular is I've essentially just used my voice and a uh, software program, so I didn't use a guitar or anything like that. I was simply using that technology and then sort of expanding upon it. Usually at the end of a party when things are winding down, I'm doing the dishes and, uh, you know, just kind of making sure that uh, everything's ship-shaped before I just go full bore into the chair and nod right out like an old timer. Kurt Wagner of the band Lamb Chop. Their new album is called Flotus. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But coming up, actor Mackenzie Davis worries about the next Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Mm. And chef and TV host Anthony Bourdain tenderly answers your etiquette questions. You've revealed yourself to be an inward-looking buffoon. Voila, when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In just a few minutes, a dream comes true for us here. Anthony Bourdain answers our listeners' etiquette questions. It's happening. That's right. And later, Oscar-nominated filmmaker Stephen Okazaki tells us about the best popcorn ever. Mm. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's rising star Mackenzie Davis. She plays the punk rock coding genius Cameron in the AMC series Halt and Catch Fire. She also appeared in the latest season of the celebrated UK anthology show Black Mirror. And you may have seen her on the big screen in The Martian. Mackenzie's latest film is called Always Shine. It's both a psychological thriller and a look at the sexist pressures of Hollywood. It's about two actors, Beth and Anna, who go to Big Sur for the weekend to mend their strained friendship. Sweet and passive Beth has a career on the rise. Mackenzie plays the more outspoken Anna, who can't seem to catch a break. 
When we spoke, I asked her which character she identified with more. Anna and I share some characteristics, uh, sort of an assertiveness and, and maybe um, I feel like I was always received a lot more aggressively than I was intending to be. And Anna, I think, intends to be quite aggressive. But a scene that really... I relate to is the scene in the bar where Anna is flirting with this new person that they've met in Big Sur and her friend Beth is being silent and in her point of view completely uninteresting yeah just sitting there disinterested and Anna is really engaged with this new man that she's met and thinks that she's flirting and is arguing and challenging him and you know asking him to defend these things he's saying I'm actually here for a, um, a men's retreat at Esalen <laughs> That's where you guys like sit around a fire and like bang mm-hmm. drums and thump your chest and everything, right? No, we do a little of that. Uh-huh. If stuff comes up. Stuff? If like stuff comes up, what mm-hmm. sort of stuff? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> competition. Competition? What does that mean? Like what? What sort of competition? You, you should um you should check out Tasahara while you're here, maybe spend a few days in silent meditation. Shut up. Are you so asking? Is she always like this? And she and I feel like that's what flirting and what connecting is, is having this really engaged (laughs) confrontational experience. And then you see later that he's totally turned off by that and is much more interested in this meek, unspeaking, Mm. beautiful cipher in the corner. And that sort of realization that engaging head on with the world isn't actually something that a lot of people like is an experience mm. that I <laughs> definitely had in the past. And that, that particular feeling of being like, oh, I don't think I know what flirting is. <laughs> when that guy turned on Anna a little bit and started to be put off by her, at that point, I didn't really get a sense why. It didn't seem like what she was engaging in seemed crazy Well, to I me. think using him as a and relating him to the other male character in the movie, Jesse, is they kind of want a vessel to project themselves onto. And when Anna Mm. becomes that vessel, she's very successful romantically, you know, in the broadest (laughs) of terms. And when she isn't that vessel, she gets rejected. And, uh, you know, I think it's just this sort of broad criticism of a type of man that, or, you know, of a type of society that would require women to reflect rather than express. But and that's also of course heightened Th- these are both actors mm-hmm. and in that industry, you know, an actor is a vessel totally. directly of often a writer's words and that sort of thing. Do you think in your experience Hollywood is the, is the same, better or worse than society in general when it comes to these sort of gender expectations? Um I think it's the same, maybe it's a more distinct drawing of some of those lines. I mean, I think a really clever thing that Lawrence Levine, Sophia Tegall's husband, who wrote the movie, Sophia Tegall directed it, um, did was to use the device of actresses to tell very clear gender stories. Because actresses are required to have this sort of succinct and and emblematic Mm. femininity to project. There's no... There's not a lot of uncertainty with actresses. You're sort of, with ex- a few notable exceptions that dare to be, you're sort of expected to to present this sort of Cinderella complex or something. And that makes it an easy surrogate to tell stories about gender because we're expected to be so um, singularly female and singularly male. Hmm. And yet... Uh, your character, Cameron Howe, from Halt and Catch Fire, kind of breaks that paradigm. She's this mm-hmm. brilliant punk rock coder. 
um, a strong leading woman. When you read for the part, were you aware that this was an exceptional thing and and were you excited about that? Yeah, uh, incredibly excited, uh, both at the um, because of the place that my career was at, where I that was a world that felt really open to me at that time. And she just felt so different. I think there's an interesting thing right now where it's become um, trendy, maybe, to talk about strong female characters, but there's nothing mm. inherently more human about strong female characters than weak female characters. I think the struggle is to just make human women that are strong and weak and strange and embarrassed and have all of the dimensions of a normal human woman instead of um, just archetyping another sort of brand of character. And I think what's Mm. interesting about Cameron and Donna on the show is they're just all sorts of people in one body and they're ambitious and they're cutthroat and they're deeply you know empathetic with each other and jealous and loving and they're just all sorts of things and that's what really attracts me to Cameron and to her relationship with Donna is just letting them be humans before being like a type you know yeah the the strong female characters also can be a a trope just as much as any other sort of character can become. Yeah, I feel a little sensitive to it right now where I'm like, oh, don't let this be the new like manic pixie yeah. dream girl where it's just another sort of type that asks us not to investigate the deeper levels of a woman. Amen. Well, we have come to the point in our interview where to investigate the deeper levels of our guests, we ask them to tell us something we don't know. And this can be a personal fact or an interesting piece of trivia about the world. Okay, I am going to try and make this sound as off the cuff as possible just because um, <laughs> I wrote it down. But it's something I'm very interested right. in. But I'm going to leave you saying that in. Just so you know. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm just going <laughs> to just riff on this idea for a second. Okay, so I wanted to talk about kamikaze termites. Have you heard about them? I have not heard about kamikaze termites. Okay, well, there is a species of termite in the rainforests of French Guiana in which the oldest workers in the colony grow these sacks on their abdomen containing a toxic blue liquid that they explode onto their enemies to guard their colonies. Um, And basically what happens is as the termites age and they become less useful to the colony, their mandibles dull. They can't, like, tend to the Mm. nest. They could wear little mandible dentures? (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) They have a new purpose. So the soldiers in the colony are the eldest, the most expendable members of the society Mm. instead of the youngest that mean the most to propagate the species. So the older they get, the more toxic this liquid grows inside of them. That is so gnarly. And is there a kamikaze procedure? They die when they blow up. Yeah, they blow themselves up to, to guard the colony. This is is what are you into this sort of stuff like insects or were you just yeah. lost in the internet? How did this? No, I am. I I know. Last summer, I I got really into I don't know sort of the savagery of the insect world, and I I I like um I don't know I like the idea of the destruction of the self to protect the whole. I think it's a cool um, aspect that happens on a biological level that's maybe been socialized. Mackenzie Davis, her new movie is called Always Shine, and next year she'll co-star alongside Ryan Gosling in the sequel to Blade Runner. Meanwhile, we will be producing an animated film about kamikaze termites, I think. (laughs) That's right, and it won't have a sequel. (laughs) For obvious reasons. And while we're on the subject, attacking your enemies with poison may be fine for termites, 
But it's no way for humans to behave. Not at all. And it's to address precisely that kind of antisocial behavior that we created our etiquette segment. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to provide you with guidance today, God help you, is Mr. Anthony Bourdain. In 2000, his best-selling memoir, Kitchen Confidential, gave readers what was then a shocking glimpse at the difficult, dangerous, and sometimes hedonistic lives of restaurant kitchen workers. Is that how you pronounce hedonist? I thought it was hedonist. <laughs> they both work, kind okay. of, All right, if sure. you think about it. Uh, Anthony's since gone on to become a megastar of food and travel TV. He has won a Peabody and three Emmys in a row for his current CNN travel show, Parts Unknown. And oh yeah, he's also a master chef. His new cookbook, co-written with Lori Woolover, is called Appetites. And Anthony, we are honored to have you on the show. Happy to be with you. Thank you. So Anthony, you've hosted food competition TV shows. You're a travel show host who can go anywhere you want in the world and get paid for it. Mm -hmm. You can write pretty much anything. What is the appeal for you at this point in writing a cookbook? How is that exciting? Oh, I'm a dad now of a nine-year-old girl, and that's who I've been cooking for for the last uh, better part of nine years. And, you know, it makes me really happy. And I, most, of the, most of the work that I've been doing uh, since I stopped cooking professionally, it, let's be honest, it's always been about me, me, me. And uh, I thought this was a... I'm not saying I'm giving back, but um, <laughs> this isn't charitable. It's a rare departure in that I try to make something that's useful and reflective of the kind of food that I've been making for the last uh, the last few years as a as a dad. Well, it's funny you, you say this is for your nine year old, but one of the one of the items in the cookbook is called the big effing steak, and and that's <laughs> yeah. a uh, that's me editing it for radio in real time. Uh, you also yeah. have like saffron risotto. So what, what's you know there's some fun recipes, there's some basic stuff. What's one recipe that gets at the heart of what the cookbook's about for you? Well, there are a couple of them. I mean, I think even the complicated-sounding bude jjigae, which is a Korean army stew, is actually, you know, pretty uh, child or dorm-friendly. Really? Uh, you know, my daughter loves making ratatouille with me. She likes mm -hmm. cooking uh, pastas and eating pastas. You know, her mom's Italian, so, you know, salty uh, little fish and uh, octopus tentacles and uh, smelly cheeses, these are not uh, strangers to her. You know, Italian babies, by the way, if you go to the, the baby food aisle in Italy, you know, they have like uh, rabbit flavor and uh, <laughs> and even horse flavor. So, what? you know, my joke was always like when she reaches that age when she wants to, you know, daddy, I want a pony. I could always grab her a jar of that and say, here's your <laughs> oh, pony. <no. laughs> We've got a feeling that as much as you know what you wanted to put into a cookbook like this, you also know what you hate about cookbooks and would never put in one. What what do you strive to avoid when you're doing a cookbook? Well, just food that's too pretty or, or you know, that you're clearly not going to be making at home. It will never look like that. Or food yeah. that presumes that you're going to get hollandaise sauce right every time, for instance. Or a, you're not. I mean, professionals learn through repetition and failure and, and, and more repetition. And I think... Uh, understanding what you're good at and, and, and what you should probably be trying. You know, you, you shouldn't be doing something overcomplicated if you're, you know, you're having guests over you want to impress. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of uh, what I talk about in the book is just organizing yourself in a way that I've learned as a professional, you know, to cook at home for guests in a way that will allow you to actually spend time with them. And in a pinch, you can use some horse-flavored Italian baby food. Yeah, right? just throw that in for some umami. <laughs> or just as a dip. So so you are known and loved for being this straight-shooting, foul-mouthed, kind of no-BS guy. And uh, I don't know if it's yet at the Groucho Marx level. With Groucho, people would run up to him on the street and beg him to insult them. But I bet it can be mm -hmm. similar for you. Is it ever exhausting? Like, some days you must feel like this huggy, hippie Anthony Bourdain, but your job mm -hmm. is to kind of not let that out much. Well, I, I never really, no, 
I never really cared one way or the other. I never felt any pressure to like be anybody but myself. I don't really, I don't care. You know, if I cared, I'd still be wearing like a leather jacket and a thumb ring, you know, 15 <laughs> years later. Uh, look, I'm a dad now, you know. But do people come up on the street and ask, like, do they get disappointed when you're kind to them? Has that ever happened? Uh, people do ask me to, at, at readings, I'll get a lot of requests to, you know, give the middle finger uh, to the camera, uh, write rude and uh, suggestive remarks, questioning their, their you know, their birth uh, in their books. It happens. But so, so that even that middle finger, that's because you kind of made food kind of punk rock with Kitchen Confidential or the the culture was already there. There were already these kind of misfits yeah. like doing drugs, being cool. But your book opened a window into that world. Mm-hmm. How has it changed at all since then? Well, look, I haven't worked in a kitchen for 15 years. It's a very different world. In fact, when I was writing about it in Kitchen Confidential, I was, you know, looking back you know, in a period in the 90s and 80s and even the 70s. So, mm-hmm. you know, when Kitchen Confidential came out, I mean, I was not sitting at home, you know, snorting rails <laughs> off a prostitute. You know, this is... Uh, <laughs> no, that's for young. Was already, that's for the youth. You know, life had changed a lot, and, and, the, and the culture of kitchens had, uh, you know, has changed enormously since I left it. In what ways do you think it's it's changed? Is it more professional, I guess, for lack of a better word? A lot more professional. It's a higher status profession. There's actually, a, if you're smart and creative and work hard and have good standards, uh, there's a chance you might actually attain some kind of success or financial security, whereas that was never a possibility in my time. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly smoking or you know drinking heavily or doing drugs visibly in the kitchen in front of other cooks in any kind of a quality restaurant, that, that they tend to frown on that now. You're breaking the hearts of lots of our listeners right now because <laughs> no. I feel like there's a lot of uh, aspiring look, derelicts. If you're, getting, if you're getting into the restaurant business because, you know, you want to party like it's, you know, 1979, you know, good <laughs> luck to you. You're not going to last long. Anthony Bourdain, his new cookbook is called Appetites. And after the break, he'll be back to aim his prodigious mind and strong opinions squarely at your etiquette dilemmas. Very strong opinions. Watch out. Plus, writer Nora McInerney recalls living life in the face of death. And we learn why screen star Toshiro Mifune deserved to be called Japan's last samurai. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a story from Nora McInerney, host of the new podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking. Plus, we discuss a new documentary about screen actor Toshiro Mifune. But first, we continue our conversation with Mr. Anthony Bourdain. That's right. He hosts the CNN travel show Parts Unknown. He's the co-author of a new cookbook called Appetites. But most importantly, we've decided he's just the guy to give our audience etiquette advice. Yes. Anthony, are you ready to answer their questions? Yes. All right. Here's something from Jason in Seattle. What is the best way, Jason writes, to quiet down a friend who is a loud talker during a meal, especially at a nice restaurant? Wow. (laughs) You look him right in the eyes. Dude, you are being, like, loud. Really (laughs) loud. And if you don't bring it down to like, you're a 10 now, and if you don't bring it down to a 5, I'm leaving. And then never eat with them again. You just can't have that. Cannot have that. And do you say that at what level? A 5, a 7, or a 10? (laughs) How loudly do you say Uh, that? I think a very quiet voice, except with more of like, you know how people's eyes get in lineups? They're sort of like, I could kill you right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, menacing. Yeah. Yeah, like, I need you to quiet right down now because we are seconds away from this meal ending. On one hand, though, I will say 
restaurants have become so loud themselves. It's almost like you need to to scream to be heard. Look, we could take this over to TGI Fridays or a sports <laughs> bar, and you could talk as loud as you yeah. want. You know, over the TV. You yeah. know, and, and the high fives. All right. This next question comes all the way from New Zealand. It's from Sophie, and Sophie writes. If someone serves me challenging awful without warning at a dinner party, is it okay for me to say I would rather poke my eyes out with a pen than have one mouthful of your tripe a la mode? I mean, it's a recipe from the Middle Ages, so okay, well done, you, but I'm not bringing back the Black Death for a revamp at my next soiree. Wow, wow. Sophie. Mm. <laughs> you will die friendless and alone. <laughs> you have disrespected your host. Okay, mm, mm. rejected yeah. uh, a beloved dish that's reflective of probably personal history. I mean, sure. that might that tripe a la mode could be a beloved family dish. You mm-hmm. just basically spat in the milk of their mother. You've rejected <laughs> a, a, you know any possibility of trying something new. You've revealed yourself to be an inward-looking buffoon, and no one I would want to be friends with. That's the polite wow. thing to say. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, some pretty harsh tr- <laughs> answers here, but and plus you sound kind of like a wiseacre. You know what I'm yeah, saying? I, yeah. I, I, I don't. I don't. Yeah, you're not yeah. coming to my party. Let's put Someone it that once way. served me inward-looking buffoon, and I had the same reaction as Sophie. I turned my nose up, and now I'm Look, regretting it. Take a little bite. You know, just try a little bite. Yeah. If you don't like it, say not really to my dad. Is a respectable response. Just yeah. try a little bit. There also, not to be regionally incorrect here, but she's from New Zealand. Awful seems like it's kind of par for the course in yeah, the culture. Really? Yeah. E- e- exactly. I don't know much about New Zealand. Cuisine. They have to import well, yeah, everything. A popular a popular activity is uh, chasing wild boar through the uh, the hills <laughs> and, with a pack of dogs and stabbing them. It's called. I mean, literally, that's like a very really? popular activity there. <laughs> Yeah, which I approve of. <laughs> Get right, over Sophie. it, Sophie. Get it sounds it. like here's something from Nathaniel and Manlius, New York, one of the best town names in America. Nathaniel writes, "How do I discipline my in-laws' kids when they visit for the holidays? Some of them are just awful and disrespectful to their parents." Do I just let it pass and explain to my kids later that their cousins are brats? Yeah, I think you're uh, talking that you can't discipline other parents' kids as much as you might like to. Yes. If they're monsters, you don't let your kids play with them. You say, yeah. look, I don't care what you think. They're, they're, they're monsters. That's a, That kid's going to grow up to be a serial killer. <laughs> oh, no. You're not playing with him anymore. But you can't. It, there's no positive outcome to telling a parent that your kids are monstrous and they need to be disciplined. That's <laughs> yeah. just, it's not your role. And parents tend to not like hearing that. Yeah, that's not a great dinner party conversation to have. Exactly. Right. You just stop inviting them All right. so the All kids right. are older. There's your advice, Nathaniel. Uh, this next question is a short one, but it's a good question. It comes from Tom in Chicago. Tom writes, when is it appropriate to send a meal back to the kitchen? Is it enough just to say, I don't like it? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh... Look, if it is not cooked the way you asked, if there is something wrong with it, meaning it is diverged in some way from the, what was promised, then you are completely within your rights to politely call the server over, keeping in mind that your server did not cook your food, so mm. do not please express your frustration on your server. That's a sin. You know, That's like the worst thing you could ever do is like get snippy and snarky with your waiter because of something the kitchen may or may not have done. Now, if it's just not what you thought it was going to be and you don't like it, preferably you wouldn't send it back. Yeah. You realize, look, I've just made a mistake. I'm not going to order that again. But I think if you really hate it and you send it back, you should fully expect to pay for the thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But more often than not, a good restaurant, they will, yeah. I think, if they're wise, accommodate you. I think it's permissible. And if you send it back. be nice about it. Sure. And if you send it back, I'm assuming you maybe tip a little extra. 
for the inconvenience to them. That's always a nice thing to do. Well, yeah. is the chef shielded from the fact that you sent a dish back just because you didn't like it? Uh, no, the chef's going to hear. Okay. And he might not like it. He or she might not like to hear that. But yeah. if they're smart and they're running a good business, it's on. Look, back in the day, I would have screamed and yelled and smashed <laughs> some plates and taken it out on the waiter and made everybody in the kitchen miserable and, and, and cursed all of the forces of the universe that conspired to bring me such a hateful, ignorant right. customer. This is why chefs die young and alcoholic. Uh, the smart yeah. thing to do would be to suck it up and send the customer something that will make them happy. That's good business, and it's probably good for everybody involved. All right. Uh, here's our last question, and kind of appropriate as we are you know, sort of in the holiday season. This is from Ashley via Facebook, and she writes, My husband and I throw a cocktail party every December with many friends. This year, I've been asked to not invite a certain person who tends to drink too much and starts drama. I personally don't have a problem with this person, but a growing number of people disagree. Do I just not invite her and let her learn through word of mouth that the party's happening without her? Tell her straight up or make my friend break the news to her. Look, it's awkward, but, uh, you know... There's nothing funny about alcoholism. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you get a loud, obnoxious, drunk ruining your party. It is understandable when you don't invite him again. Yeah, sure. Uh, but the question you seems think about not... the good of the community. How <laughs> do you approach? Yeah. yeah, how do you Look, approach it? I I didn't invite you because let's face it, you're a bad drinker. You get loud. You get belligerent. You know, and uh, you miss the bowl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You make it sound so easy. I know. And I don't know if it's because I've been watching you for years, but it's just, yeah, why don't more people just call and tell it like it is? Look, it's a friend who causes big scenes of drama at at Christmas. Yeah, not okay. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, it's been a joy having you. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. (laughs) My pleasure. Anytime. Anthony Bourdain, his new cookbook is called Appetites. And folks, if you want to be called a buffoon by a celebrity, fun, or just have a question answered, head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now, time for Chattering Class, in which we're schooled by an expert on some party-worthy topic. The topic this week, the late screen legend Toshiro Mifune who from the 1940s and into the 80s was known world-round as Japan's answer to John Wayne. Indeed. He starred in almost 200 movies, including a slew of classics directed by the great Akira Kurosawa, and his life is the subject of a new film called Mifune, The Last Samurai. It's from Oscar-winning documentarian Stephen Okazaki. When we spoke, Stephen reminisced about his first encounters with Mifune's films as a kid in 1960s California. There were several Japanese movie theaters in Los Angeles, and we went to them devotedly. And uh, it was kind of cool. They had, you know, green tea as well as Coca-Cola and sembei, which is, you know, the rice crackers. You pour them in your popcorn and mix them up, and uh, the Hawaiians call it mochi crunch. Oh, Um, my. I think I'm going to try that this weekend. It's really, really good. gives your popcorn just a little something extra. And so there was, I don't know, just that experience, feeling a little more international and seeing the Kurosawa Mifune films when I was a kid. Actually, you start your film years before Mifune's birth, talking about the early silent era of uh, Japanese samurai movies. Why is that important in a movie about Miyafune's life? Well, the, you know, the samurai is just a really interesting figure in, in Japanese culture. He's kind of the opposite. You know, in Japanese culture, the point is to fit in, not to stand out. The nail that sticks up gets pounded down. And the samurai is a, 
individual who stands up for himself. He's really the contrast to what Japanese society is always promoting. And you could argue, obviously, the name of your film is The Last Samurai. You seem to believe that Mifune embodied characteristics of that samurai character. Why do you think he ended up being this long-standing figure of rebellion, in a way? Well, uh, Mifune was always sort of read to be a bit of an individual. He, he did not grow up in Japan. He grew up in Japanese-occupied China and did not uh, step into Japan till he was 21. And then he went, when he was in the army, he trained kamikaze pilots. And he was all, mm-hmm. always got in trouble. He was all, when he was a kid, we talk about how he always got into fights defending his brother. So he was, you know, he was, he was kind of always a, a bit of a rebel. Um, I do want to get into how he got into acting because it's an amazing story. He arrives in the Japanese <laughs> cinema kind of by a fluke. Tell us the story. Yeah, well, I mean, at, Japan was just, you know, devastated after the war and he had all these, you know, young men and women without jobs. And Mifune was just looking for a job and because his father had run a still photography studio, he had some technical skills. So he applied to be a camera assistant at Toho Studios, which later brought us Godzilla. And <laughs> I mean, one thing about Mifune, he's strikingly good looking. He's just striking, you know. So he, somebody pushed his resume over to the acting competition. And, uh, yeah, it was like a contest. It was like a nationwide talent contest. Yeah, it was called New Faces. Um, and you can see in, in the photos of the young men who are competing. I mean, you can see the rib cages on most of the men. They're basically starving, Mm -hmm. looking for a job. And Mifune, likewise, just wanted to get a job. And, happened to meet, you know, one of the great Japanese directors, Akira Kurosawa, and they formed this collaboration alliance and made 16 incredible films together. Yeah, his career really does seem kind of karmic, just meant to be. He happens, he stumbles Mm. into acting, he happens to stumble into acting just as Kurosawa is starting to make films. What do you think Kurosawa saw in this raw kid, though? Well, I think that for Kurosawa, Mifune was clearly someone who could be different than the traditional, you know, matinee movie star of Japan at the time. In the film, uh, someone's commenting on Mifune's big breakthrough film, Rashomon, and he just says, you know, we didn't know what to think. We just went, what? When they saw the film, yeah. He was so gruff and raw in that film. Martin Scorsese is in the film and comments that Mifune studied lions and tigers in the zoo for his part, and you can really feel that. Yeah, he's just kind of stalking around. It's interesting. I first saw Mifune when I was a kid in one of his last roles in mm-hmm. the TV miniseries Shogun, yeah, which had a huge impact on me and a lot of people at that time. His his performance is so fierce in that thing. But in your film, you say that he, he suffered from Alzheimer's towards the end of his life. Was that hitting him then? I think it just came really fast and in the last five years of his life. But he, at that time, really... I mean, he loved, he may have fallen into acting by accident, but he loved acting. He loved the camaraderie of the crew. Um, you know, he was sort of famous for, you know, hanging out with the crew and making lunch for the crew if the location food wasn't very good. So he loved that kind of lifestyle and the preparation. And so even when he started showing signs of Alzheimer's, he had his son come in with cue cards. Yeah. You know, he pretty much worked to the very end, actually. You're a director. You're also a fan. What for you is maybe the single scene that sums up Mifune's work? Well, I mean, I saw this film called Samurai Trilogy when I was a teenager, and it 
made a huge impression on me. I, at that time, we would mostly play cowboys. Occasionally, we'd split into jets and sharks and reenact West Side Story. But when I saw Samurai Trilogy, you know, I wanted a samurai sword. Yeah. And there's a scene in that film that my friends and I would just, we talked about it endlessly, where Mifune is sitting quietly having some soba noodles. And these hoodlums, you know, crowd around and they threaten him. And he, he doesn't bat an eyelid. He just, with his chopsticks, starts plucking flies off his soba and out of the air. And the bad guys just go, whoa, yeah. and they tear out of there. That, that, I don't know, there was something, you know, he doesn't pull out his sword. He doesn't hurt anybody. He's just so cool. He can just have lunch and scare people. <laughs> Steven Okazaki, his new documentary is called Mifune, The Last Samurai, and it's in select theaters now. You will never look at chopsticks the same way again. And now, time to eavesdrop. In 2014, writer Nora McInerney had a year like few others. She miscarried a child, then lost her father and her husband to cancer. Those tragedies are the jumping-off point for her new podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking, a show about talking honestly and with humor, too, about the painful things in life. Today we overhear a piece of Nora's story from her recent memoir. I don't want to have cancer, he whispers. We are curled up in his hospital bed, trying to go to sleep in the alternate universe we found ourselves in. When we woke up this morning, we were just a regular young couple secretly cohabitating after a year of dating. But somewhere in the middle of the day, he'd had a seizure, ended up in the hospital, and found out he'd somehow grown a brain tumor without even noticing. You don't have cancer, I tell him, because he doesn't. He has a tumor, and until they open up his head to take it out, that tumor could be anything. A conjoined twin absorbed into his skull at birth, a silver dollar, handful of cotton candy. But it's not cancer, because I won't let it be. And in my 28 years on this earth, I've become damn used to getting whatever the hell I want. My first boyfriend, an A when I deserve to be in American history, my first job, a dimple in my right cheek. Just a sampling of the things I've gotten through sheer willpower. Whatever the nurse gave Aaron a few minutes ago is starting to work, and I can feel his body gently relax next to me. I'd asked if I could have a sleeping aid, too, but Nurse Neal just laughed and dropped his signature line. I know, right? So I'm left wide awake in the glow of my boyfriend's heart monitor. I keep my hand on his head and my head on his heart, and in the glow of our new nightlight, I command the universe to keep going my way. And then... I'm standing by his grave, having traveled at light speed from the present to the worst-case scenario. The priest is swinging incense over Aaron's body. I'm kneeling next to his mother in a church pew. I'm throwing a handful of damp earth onto his casket, shiny as a Cadillac. We are young and in love, and my boyfriend is going to die. I drag myself from this imaginary hell into the real and present one in front of me. Sneaking out of our hospital bed to wash my hot, tear-soaked face and look into my own tired eyes in the tiny, beige-tiled, fluorescent-lit ensuite bathroom in his hospital room. 
If you had a really excellent imagination and a really bad sense of what a hotel experience should be like, you could almost pretend you were at a cheap motel. Though even those don't have ball chain cords next to the toilet to pull in case of emergency. Aaron was where I'd left him, sleeping on his side in a hospital bed built for one, leaving space for me. You cannot do that again, I tell myself. You cannot bury the man you love while he's still alive. So I didn't. I fought the urge to try to feel things before they happened, and instead tried to feel what was actually happening. I think this is called being present or living your life, but it was a really new concept for me, and it blew my mind in the same way discovering that Drake was Jimmy on Degrassi. Aaron had brain surgery and got discharged from the hospital, and we went to Target, as is customary. He was diagnosed with brain cancer, and we decided to get married, like, immediately. Cancer be damned. We didn't spend time reading about brain tumors or bothering with statistics because, forget it, we had several HBO series to watch, and that didn't leave a lot of time for worrying. We got so good at being alive in the moment that I think a lot of people in our lives forgot Aaron was sick. And actually, I think we sometimes forgot Aaron was sick. And that an incurable cancer meant an impossible future. But who needed the future? Until we'd have to wake up at 6 a.m. for an MRI or go see his oncologist, we were just a regular young couple who had more chemo than food in their cupboards and were on a first-name basis with radiation staff. A day before our wedding, I had one small word tattooed in cursive inside my right wrist. It was my something new for our wedding day, and a reminder to myself that nothing good ever came of time traveling. It's just one tiny word that helped me do the biggest things in life, like getting married and buying a house and having a baby or getting my ears pierced at age 32. When I need reminding of what time it is, I just look down and it always says the same thing. Now. Nora McInerney, reading from her recent memoir, It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too. Her podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking, just launched last week. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Thanks to our senior producer, Jackson Musker, associate digital producer, Christina Lopez, intern Kathleen McGovern, and to Christian Coons, our jack-of-all-trades who is leaving us this week. You can Mm. still hear his fine production work on the podcast, Song Exploder. And folks, if you haven't yet, do subscribe to our podcast. You'll get not only our weekly show, but also extra goodies like our behind-the-scenes speakeasy episodes. We've got one coming up soon with stories from our recent trip with some listeners to Cuba. In the last days of Castro. And this Tuesday, you can catch us on Facebook for a special holiday-themed Facebook Live event. We promise it'll be more fun than your office holiday party, and you can show up in your PJs. No judgment. Until next time, bon appétit.